This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Wow, new music. First time I've heard that myself. It was, it was just jarring to my ears having had the other music for, for so many years. Uh, talking about so many years, I've been here in Arizona, over 40 of them. And for that entire period, water has loomed as a, as a big issue, though very often not an immediate issue. It's always been out there. Historically, there is a particular inflection point, and that is 1980, when Arizona passed something called the uh, Ground, Groundwater Act, and uh, it was regarded as a national model. Well, fast forward, uh, you know, people all over the country took note of that, that it was a very good thing. Now, fast forward, what we've got a couple of guests here they are going to answer, among other things, um, is there a reason why that didn't work, or did it just run its course? But but there are uh, there are there have been shortages here for a long time, but things have very much come to a head, even in the last several days, because the federal government has, for the very first time, declared a water shortage at Lake Mead. They've noted that the water level is as low as it has ever been other than when they were originally filling the lake in the 1930s. That triggers cuts that for now will mostly affect Arizona's farmers and the expectation of larger cuts in the years to come. Uh, Hoover Dam uh, uh, is expected to be at about 34% of capacity, in other words, down by two-thirds. Our guest, Todd Reeve, is founder of Business for Water Stewardship, And Kevin Moran is here. He's with the Environmental Defense Fund. Later on, Paul Benz is also in the studio. He's not a water guy. As you know, he's a political guy. And he he and I, in the final segment, will be talking about some of the politics of this. Uh, Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Uh, I want to start with you, Kevin. And, uh, well, first of all, you're with the Environmental Defense Fund. Tell us what that is and how that relates to water issues. Yeah, right. Mike, thanks for for the invitation. Great to be on with you, Todd, and Paul. EDF is an international nonprofit focused on solving our greatest environmental challenges in ways that work and that are durable with communities and stakeholders for the long term. EDF is based in New York, and we have offices uh, in several countries, uh, offices out west in Boulder, San Francisco, and remotely in Phoenix. And uh, my role is as senior director for water policy and state affairs based in Phoenix for the seven Colorado River Basin states. So uh, let me start with a general uh, question to you. Uh, How bad is the problem right now? Uh, You know, we just had a lot of rain. Are we okay now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, the answer is no. Uh, The rain is great, and it provides some short-term relief. Uh, It's nice to see an actual monsoon uh, that I remember from my youth in Arizona. But the the challenge is great. Uh, We have a major and serious issue with water in the Colorado River Basin. Here's the story. Uh, The river was allocated among the seven states in 1922, which was actually 
of one of the wettest periods in the Paleolithic record, thousands of years, okay? They divided the, re- the river in 1922. They assumed that there would be 16.5 million acre feet every year. And here's what's happened. Since 2000, the river has produced 20% less water. The hydrology is starkly different. And scientists tell us, scientists tell us that going forward, we should plan for a 14 to 30% additional decline in river flows. So Colorado River Basin is ground zero for climate change impacts on water. We've got a serious challenge we need to step up to. So uh, uh, I, you anticipated my next question. These reductions in water flow, is that directly attributable to climate change? Uh, the answer is we can track scientifically at least half of that decline since 2000 to climate change. And I would refer listeners uh, to the work of Brad Udall at Colorado State University, uh, among others. About half is climate change driven, and uh, we're dealing with a new water reality. Now, you know, obviously our language needs to change as our scientific and practical understanding changes, Mike. The word drought is quickly becoming outdated. Drought implies that the rains we just had or the next big rain in Colorado is going to get us past a temporary difficulty. So what scientists are telling us is we have an era of aridification. The climate is drier over a longer term. We plan for permanently less water from that hydrologic system. Now, we need to do other things, too, for water security, including desalination, greater conservation across all sectors, innovation in agriculture. We need to do all of the above. And I would emphasize, we can no longer ignore or take for granted the health of the natural system that produces that water, the rivers, streams, underground aquifers, and forests that produce the water we rely on. We can't ignore the health of those natural systems as we go forward. Now, in our uh, in in the state currently, can you ballpark for me how much of the water statewide that we have? And I know water has different sources, and we'll talk about that later. How much of that is urban people in their suburban you know yards with landscaping and whatever, and how much is agriculture? Yeah. So in Arizona, roughly seventy percent of all water consumed in a given year is consumed by agriculture. Uh, And uh, that's true pretty much across the West, and in many basins and sub-basins, it's closer to 80%. Uh, You know, we have major agricultural production, Mike, as you know, in in the Yuma area in southwestern Arizona, also in central Arizona, in the three counties served by the Central Arizona Project, Maricopa, Pinal, Pima, we have significant agricultural production as well. And going forward, all, sec- all sectors are going to be challenged to innovate, to use less water, uh, and to be part of collaborative solutions, which is the only way we get past the epic challenge we face. So uh, in terms of uh, handling a shortage, uh when the feds say we're cutting back, does that end up being across the board, or are there people who are protected? Yeah, a great question, Mike. 
So in the current situation, the shortage that was just declared, the state of Arizona had a chance to plan for it. And the Arizona Department of Water Resources and CAT, working with all kinds of stakeholders, did a good job in the near term. So the plan, we were able to plan for this shortage declaration. What it means is roughly 18% of Arizona's Colorado River water is cut in 2022, and the drought contingency plan agreement and the Arizona Arizona got together a multi-stakeholder process and planned for these cuts. And so what happened was there, there's a plan in place. It's called the Infra-Arizona Drought Contingency Implementation Plan. There you guys can check out Arizona Department of Water Resources website if you want the details. 18% cut. The biggest hit is to central Arizona farmers, especially in Pinal County, some in Pima and Maricopa, uh, where where they are going to be losing roughly a third of the Colorado River water they've been using to grow crops and, and to, and to uh, serve livestock. And so there is a priority system where the Central Arizona Project brings water to the three-county area, and there's a priority system within that within that structure, and the farmers in Central Arizona have the lowest priority. They're taking the biggest cut. But I will be quick to add, Mike, that the plan included mitigation so that those cuts were not as bad as they otherwise might have been. All right. We'll, we'll pick up for those farmers. We'll pick up that discussion yeah. in just a moment, and we'll be joined by Todd Reeve, who's with Business for Water Stewardship, when we return in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with, uh, we've been speaking to Kevin Moran of the Environmental Defense Fund, Todd Reeve of Business for Water Stewardship. Very briefly, uh, welcome to the show and tell us what your organization is and does. Thank you so much for having me, Mike, and great to be on with Kevin and Paul. So Business for Water Stewardship is a major program of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation, which is a nonprofit. We are one of the primary partners working with companies to help engage them and support them in contributing to projects and programs and influence. They're going to help create proactive, progressive water solutions in places like the desert Southwest, Arizona. So we're working with companies all over the country, even internationally, um, within their water stewardship strategies to partner with them and help guide and support their actions that ultimately can contribute to solutions around water scarcity, water quality issues, water for rivers, habitat, communities. Well, just as a program note here, and I cleared this with you ahead of time, the Bonneville Environmental Foundation has no relationship to Bonneville Corporation, which is the parent of KTAR. So uh, if it if it were, I'd have no problem, but I would acknowledge that. But it's not. So yep. question for you. I think a, a critical uh, sort of moment in Arizona water history was the 1980 Water Compact. It was regarded as a national model. Tell us a little bit about what that did and uh, it seem, we seem to be at a point where something else needs to be done. Was that an inadequacy in the original uh, agreement, or is that climate change, or is that some combination of other things? Yeah, great question to set the stage. And, and I think if we step back a little bit and think of the pioneering history of, of the Southwest or of, of a state like Arizona— when people came to a state like Arizona, it was difficult to imagine that you could ever use up the water resources, whether that's surface water from rivers and streams or springs, or whether that's groundwater. 
But as we know across the West, especially as we've urbanized, as we've developed agriculture, other water uses, um, our opinions on how much water was available and where there might be stress have evolved. And Arizona really stepped up in an incredibly innovative and compelling way in 1980 with the Groundwater Management Act. And essentially what that did was it identified a handful of locations across the state where water use and growth had great potential to outstrip supplies, in particular, groundwater supplies. And as agriculture was being developed, as cities were expanding, it was easy to tap into these deep groundwater resources that were filled with water during, let's say, the last thousands of years during the last ice age and readily tap into that water and use it for economic development, community development, et cetera. So folks in Arizona began to realize if we continue extracting at the current rate, rate if we expand our extraction, we're essentially going to run out of water. We won't have a sustainable water supply. So five locations across Arizona initially were included in this very carefully crafted groundwater management act that sought to balance the amount of water with the available supply to, to ultimately create long-term predictable water supplies in these areas of significant water extraction. No surprise, Phoenix and Tucson are two of those primary areas where that growth was occurring, water extraction was expanding. And I think it's really important to look at you know, groundwater is incredibly important to the state as it makes up close to 40% of the water that Arizona relies on. Um, and talking earlier with Kevin, looking at the Colorado River in particular, close to that amount at around 36%. So we really have this balance in Arizona where we need to take care of groundwater, we need to take care of that surface water, the Colorado River, to be able to sustain predictable water supplies. And the Groundwater Management Act has done a a very good job. Certainly refinements and improvements are required to continue making that work as well as possible. It's done a great job in some of those areas, you know, back even 40 years ago at this point, where Arizona had the foresight to see that water extraction is, is potentially going to outstrip some supply. Was it the 1980 Act that put in the pro that the requirement that developers who are putting in a development have to prove a hundred-year uh, verified supply? Was that the source of that? Kevin could probably speak directly to that. That certainly has been an outcome of the Act. I'm not certain that that um, hundred-year assured water supply um, component was created in 1980. But as you're describing, it's really important to note that within areas in Arizona where there are water supply concerns, um, that assured water supply being able to demonstrate or prove that there's a 100-year water supply available for a community or a new housing development is a critical and, and foundational element of that work today in many places. Have, have we kept to that? Apart from the requirements of the law, you know, it, the, the law is only helpful if in, in the administration of it you keep to it. Has it been a problem of, of any entities succumbing to political pressure and allowing development where, it really, where, where it's really not justified in terms of the water supply? Great question. And of course, there are political pressures all over the place that would like to um, change or reduce or alter the regulations associated with development and water access, right? Across the West, we know water flows toward money. Um, water's for, you know, water's something that people fight about and have historically. So there's always immense pressure among different interests to try and alter 
um, the rules and open up access, um, reduce some restrictions, and be able to facilitate perhaps near-term economic expansion at the expense of long-term predictable water supply. And since so much of our work is focused on supporting business interests, the majority of our clients have very strong interest in the state of Arizona, want to expand, want to hire, want to grow here. They all tell us the same thing, that what's most important to them is long-term predictable water supply. And so as we look at those political pressures to ultimately um, change, alter, reduce some of the restrictions that are tied to, say, the, the, the um, active management areas, that's a huge risk to long-term business interests, right? Because as we make as we may consider altering due to political pressure, we ultimately reduce the, the predictability and the stability around these water supplies, which from our business client perspectives reduces their ability to invest for the long term in Arizona. Are your clients uh, all agriculture or is there an element that's high tech? I know some of the high tech manufacturing has water requirements. That, that's a great question, and I think that really speaks to the changing um, nature of the Western U.S. We actually don't have any agricultural clients. Oh. All of our clients are in food and beverage, technology, um, home products, et cetera. And so what we're seeing is Arizona in particular is an incredibly ripe environment for business development, for expansion, for growth from all these sectors that usually don't come to mind perhaps as a big water user, but they're becoming concerned as they see all the information that Kevin described previously, or they look at the state of rural groundwater where depletion issues are in the news frequently in the state of Arizona, and there are few, if any, restrictions We're up against that. a break. We'll be back with Todd Reeve and Kevin Moore and discussing water in Arizona when we return in just a moment. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Now, uh, we are back with uh, Todd Reeve and Kevin Moran uh, on the subject of water. Paul Benz uh, will be with us in the next segment to discuss the politics of all of this. I'll throw this question out to both of you gentlemen, whoever wants to take it. Uh, during the break, you guys pointed out to me that one of the issues that we have here is that over 80% of the land area in Arizona is currently unregulated as far as groundwater. And uh, how much of a contributor to our problem is and, and what's your, your take on, on how we should deal with that? And what areas are we talking about? Thanks. I think this is one of the crucial points. We talked about the, the active management areas where groundwater has been carefully managed for, for 40 years. 80% of Arizona an area where almost 1.4 million people live, it's essentially open access. Is that basically the non-metro areas? Is it greater Phoenix, greater Tucson is managed and the other areas are not? Is that a, a close approximation? Generally speaking, yes, that's the case. There are some, some small examples of other areas um, in the non-metro where there are some, some rules, but across 80% of the state, and that's all along the Colorado River, in Western Arizona, all across Northern Arizona, um, the eastern border of the state. Um, these are areas where if you have a lot of money, you can drill a really deep well, you can put in a really big pump, you can pump as much water as you want to. Even and if it dries out your right neighbor. Now, indeed, and, and those are the concerns. Does your neighbor's well that's been there for 100 years dry up? 
Does that neighbor have to invest new money in a deeper well to keep up? Those are very real concerns. Is a single user potentially tapping into long-term groundwater resources that might have been available to a larger community over the long term? And so there's a very real concern that, of course, Arizona has to balance its water use in the urban areas, in the rural areas, groundwater and surface water, also be very proactive on the Colorado. But if we don't do all of these things simultaneously, of course, what happens as we lose, let's say, access to the surface water on the Colorado River, it just puts more pressure on that groundwater and we begin to deplete it more rapidly. And so there's great risk right now, I would say reputationally for the state. And as we look at our business clients, as there's more and more media stories about groundwater extraction with no rules um, at the cost of local communities, long-term ranching families, et cetera, reputational risk for the state when, when businesses look at this and say, hold on a second, does Arizona have its water house in order? And in rural groundwater issues, there's work to be done to, to develop new tools that local communities can design themselves, can implement to help manage, help protect these groundwater resources for the long term. Now, why wasn't this dealt with in the 80 Act? Was it just not, not that big a problem at that time? I think, again, it was unimaginable, right, that these rural areas outside of, say, Phoenix and Tucson and a few other locations could ever um, experience this type of pressure, this type of growth. And even if we look at some of the rural residential developments, right, in southeastern Arizona and the Verde Valley, we see those sorts of pressures as well. Those areas are becoming very popular for rural residential retirement. Each of those houses, of course, has its own well that goes in. And so while that's very different from industrial-scale pumping, I don't think it was imaginable, right, that these this area, 80% of the state, could see this kind of pressure from water development. Now, correct me. I, and, uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's right, Todd and Mike uh, and Paul. Uh, I would say that politics as the art of the possible also did not include getting over the opposition of various parts of rural Arizona, which at the time didn't want the state to even get into it. So I think both things were true. I think Todd is right. A lot of the concerns at the scale we're seeing now were unimaginable, and rural folks didn't want the state meddling. I think I think you Paul told me uh, so, uh, some things that or Kevin rather that uh, that uh, there are these folks who were perhaps very much anti-regulation at one point uh, now are are very much on the other side when they see their own uh, water that they're using at risk. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, it's one thing to you know have a have what sounds like a a clear story or an ideology uh, that might that might include the idea that there ought not to be any government regulation or the minimalist uh, of regulation. It's another thing if an entire community's future is at risk because of a handful of big industrial water pumpers. Frankly, it's another thing if the water if the water's at risk or if if domestic wells that have been there a long time are are, are declining and 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 there's there's a real concern. So it creates a strange bedfellows uh, and offered but, but frankly in that is opportunity for communities to come together around you know across multiple sectors and across the spectrum to say we need to plan for a water future for our community and it does involve some steps and trade-offs that we haven't been talking about historically now i, I wanted to ask you there was a, a legal question here that that comes to mind the way, the way you describe with uh 
with uh, groundwater that's, uh, that in these unregulated areas, somebody can just go in, dig deeper, and basically dry up all the competing uh, claims on water. My understanding is that's completely different from the law with respect to surface water, whereas there's a concept for surface water known as prior appropriation. And that means if you had a farm and you've been taking water out of there for 100 years to run your farm, that gives you a certain legal claim on that that gives you rights that sound to me like it's it's completely different in terms of whether that water is at the surface or below the ground. Is that, is that a fair statement? It's a very interesting concept, and I think historically there was little acknowledgement that groundwater and surface water interacted or connected, and we're finding across the southwest, certainly in Arizona, that, that springs, that river flows are very much connected to groundwater. And so one of the significant issues around that prior appropriation concept is if your surface water rights are very well regulated, and let's say it's clear what your access is to that surface water, but just over the hill, someone has unlimited access to groundwater and they're pumping out the groundwater, it is very probable that they ultimately are chipping away at your surface water right because those two legal systems don't intersect. And so that is a significant issue in many areas across the Southwest, certainly areas across Arizona, where because those two groundwater surface water rights are legally managed in different ways, it puts certain users at risk that may have thought, you know, they had perfect protection of their water right because this other connected groundwater resource doesn't have that same regulation or protection. Or if you had the rights to a certain amount of water, say, flowing from the Colorado River, and all of a sudden that flow is down by 30 or 40 percent, I, I, it's an open question. Can you still take the same amount, or are you proportionally reduced along with other people? I, I, I don't, uh, I don't know the legal uh, thing, but my guess is those end up. In yeah, court. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Todd and Mike, you, you described the differences between surface water prior appropriation and rights to pump groundwater. Exactly right. Along the Colorado River, there is a priority system, and it is, uh, it starts with an allocation uh, that each of the seven states have by compact, which is uh, what we call an agreement between states. And when the flows go down, uh, there is a priority system. Uh, the seven states have an agreement on how they're going to share that decline. And then within the states, there's a priority system. So, for example, the Colorado River Indian tribes, whose water rights date to documents that Abraham Lincoln signed, they're along the Colorado River, about 100 miles along the river of different, different uh, reservation lands. They have among the highest priority water right in the lower basin, below, uh, below uh, uh, Glen Canyon Dam. And so, as a strict legal matter, their rights are stronger than many others. Now, that said, CRIT, the Colorado River Indian Tribes, has been participating in collaborative agreements to share some of their water and to be compensated for foregoing some of its water use. And Todd and I actually were involved, and Todd did landmark work getting corporations and private partners to help support that work. So, uh, guys, we're, we're, we're getting near the end. Where do, we, where do we go from here? What do you think, what do you think happens over the next uh, year or so in terms of legislation and, and basically how this whole issue is treated? 
Yeah. Um, I think a couple of high level takeaways and then I'll maybe let Kevin get into the details, but with water issues across the West, historically, it's just been very easy to hope that it rains a lot next year, right? If you're an elected official, you can hope that these pain points go away. And what we're seeing is long-term aridification. There's less water available now. There will likely be less water available in the coming decades. And so we're seeing a very significant shift in the political attention that is paid to these issues. And there are practical near-term needs, and there are some fanciful long-term solutions. And I think what we'll see in the coming session and in the coming years is a much serious, much more serious approach to rolling up the sleeves plugging some of these gaps in policy that are creating challenges and really taking a near-term all-hands-on-deck approach to we need all of the above to create this predictable long-term water supply solution for the state of Arizona. And so for us, we've seen a, a sea change in how people have dismissed the challenges and the need to address this to really saying, yeah, we're going to get on this. We, we're, we're seeing that this is a long-term trend that's only going to get worse. So let's begin addressing it. And there's a whole suite of policy conversations and considerations that go from tribes to groundwater to surface water to, you know, the AMAs that will become front and center um, with significant public support for being more proactive and progressive around water. Kevin, do you have thoughts on some of the nuances and yeah, where the and your and your concluding thoughts, Kevin? And and do you agree that yeah. and do you agree that there there is a sea change in public attitudes that will precipitate I, action? I do, I do, and I think Paul is going to be able to talk in detail about that. There is a, there is a change. Uh, I think people get it living in the, living in this arid region and with our history. We have to deal with the reality of a permanently more arid climate. It does require an all sector and really an all of society approach. In the legislature next year, there'll be bills to authorize locally tailored rural groundwater management in Arizona. We need to move on that. We need to invest money in the right kind of innovation and technology improvements in more water storage. And the federal government needs to get it right. They need to address the source, the climate pollution that's the source of many of these problems. And we need to, we need to spend money for things that actually matter for Western communities and water security. Okay, thank you very much. Kevin Moran, uh, Todd uh, Reeve, uh, we'll be back with Paul Benz talking about the politics of this and particularly tricky because the politics involve, I think, the allocation of scarcity. And that's never any fun when we return in just a moment in the think tank. Thank you, guys. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. All right, we're back now to talk the, the dirty politics of this. Uh, never any fun, Paul Vince. When you're allocate, if you if you got a whole pile of extra money and you're giving it out, you can make everybody happy. But here we seem to be allocating pain. And uh, what's what? You've got data on this. What what do you think is the public's tolerance of pain in this area? Well, I, I think the first thing to start with is looking at. Uh, water as a long-term issue facing the state of Arizona. And what we have found in the last couple of years is that uh, the concern about long-term water supplies has risen pretty significantly as a top issue facing the state. It's now the third highest issue at about 15 percent 
making it the highest issue in our latest statewide polling. Uh, immigration was number one. Education was number two. Um, but long-term water supplies has come in at number three. And more yeah, than what that. What kind of percentage? At 15%. So okay. 15% of the electorate think yeah. it's the highest issue. A little bit heavier among Democrats. But it is coming along uh, pretty significantly. But the one that really sticks out to me is we defined a drought. A drought is defined as a prolonged period of low rainfall leading to a shortage of water. Do you believe we are in a drought? And 77% of likely voters statewide think that we are in a drought, including a majority of Republicans at 73% and across um, all regional, including rural, where 81% of rural Arizonans think we're in a drought. This was completed more than a week ago. Well, yeah, this was completed before our heavy rainfall, for sure. I, before it would, the wouldn't you be fascinated to see what, what numbers you'd get this week? Yeah, I would. But it, this is now, I will tell you, this is up uh, more than 10 points than from 2017. We asked this question in previous surveys. Um, and it's up quite a bit, as well as water being uh, the top issue. And so we are seeing it more, and I think it has to do with growth. In Maricopa, the U.S. Census just announced Maricopa County is the fastest growing county in the in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've Percentage seen a, wise, I think, a yeah. significant yeah. Uh, amount of growth. I think mm-hmm. people are feeling it. Um, housing prices are rapidly increasing. You know, following uh, the economic bubble bursting on the housing in 2008 or so, we saw growth fall down pretty significantly on all of our polling and in the general belief of sure, doing people something. Were, uh, people were stuck in their houses because sure. they couldn't sell them and therefore inhibits what you can do and, and a lot yeah. of dirt lots too i'd yeah. say and yeah. so but we've seen in the last few years that's come up and so growth is really high when you talk about transportation issues water issues school issues and so i think growth is feeding which that. is why i think the infrastructure is sailing through congress right i think infrastructure is being fed by water but i think that's that concern and then you look at things like the wildfires now i agreed just recently, we've had a ton of water and flash flooding and everything. But part of the reason the flash floods have happened is because the wildfires came yes. through and created these burn scars that the flash floods are now rushing through. So, But that requires an understanding of a overall system. And, and these guys would tell you, I know, right. that this immediate, that there's a, it's sort of like the difference between weather and climate. Weather is what's happening today. Climate is the next 10 years, the next 20 years. Well, and that's why I like to talk about drought and pull drought questions versus climate change or global warming, because people... People always you that know, puts, a pol- that's a put, puts a political overlay on it. Yeah. Well, when you say global warming, it's like, well, it's cold today, so it can't be. There yeah. can't be global yeah. warming. So we, when you talk about that, though, just being aware and increasing awareness of water challenges is something that we are seeing increase among the Arizona electorate, and at least um, that hopefully that makes it increase as we go into a gubernatorial cycle in 2022, that people start to talk about it, because it is a critical issue, and we are facing the first shortage, as you mentioned, um, from the Colorado River. We are, uh, large portions of the state are unmanaged when it comes to where that water is. And that was a shocker, wasn't it? Did the, you, maybe you knew that. I didn't. I did that the 80% of the land area is unmanaged. So one of the things we found from our polling is only about a third of the electorate understands that Arizona currently manages water. About 33 or so percent said yes, 33% or so said no, mm-hmm. and another third. So it's basically divided into a third, which means they have no idea. Yeah. So yeah. understanding that if you live in the metro areas, your your water is being managed, but if you go out into some of these places, large industrial farms and others could start pumping water. I don't think people are aware of that, and that's definitely an awareness challenge that yeah, we face. If you're a small farmer, you're probably aware of that. Right. Uh, you're, you're feeling in jeopardy. Your, your whole 
operation. It, that, to me, was just a shocker that somebody could go in, dig, dig a deeper well, and suck you dry, basically. Well, and if you're a brewer or a wine grower or some of these things, some of the p- folks that are in, like, business for water stewardship, they mentioned it briefly, like the beverage industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, we like our beer and our wine here in Arizona. You know, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Well, the problem is you actually need water to make whiskey, and you need water to make beer and wine. And so recognizing the connection between those two um, is critically important in sort of making this narrative and helping the the electorate and the common folk understand that we have a major water challenge that needs to be addressed. Well, one of the the other takeaways I have is 70 percent, despite our burgeoning population, 70 percent of our water use is agriculture. And that what that says to me is that uh, in the urban areas, we can contribute to water a little bit around the margins, but the the big hit is going to be what you do with agriculture. That, that's right. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about the other day is the five C's. The five C's, the founding of the, Arizona, of the state of Arizona, three out of the five require pretty significant water when you talk about cotton, cattle, and citrus. And so the other two, of course, being copper and climate. But when you look at it, the, farming has been a big part of Arizona's history, and we shouldn't be surprised. But I was fairly blown away because you hear about, oh, it's golf courses or, oh, it's growth. Actually, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it is significant agriculture cultural use that is important and a, a lively part of our economy, but we have to be mindful that they have an over-influential share when it comes to places like the legislature, and so they're dominating this water discussion, but they need to be part of the solution as well. Yeah, I think the golf courses and some of the public uses are more symbolic than anything. I remember hearing squawks in the city of Scottsdale about how they've lush green landscaping around their city hall. Well, that's one facility right. for an entire population, you know, that, that that's a drop, literally a drop in the bucket. Now, if you if you required uh, Phoenix to go to Tucson levels of water use and basically turned, you know, cut, uh, you know, eliminated front yard lawns or something like that, it would be it would be significant. It wouldn't be earth shattering, but it would be a it'd be a contributing piece. But it wouldn't solve the problem. It, I it mean, would not solve the problem. And yeah. the and the electorate understands that. We just one of the questions we ask is, do you believe the state of Arizona has enough water to last a hundred years? And sixty five percent of likely voters said no. So mm-hmm. basically two thirds of our audience recognizes that we have a problem and that we probably don't have enough water for the next hundred years. Which I do do back to your point of pain. We didn't get into the details of some of this yet, but I do think that there is an appetite, at least an understanding, that we have to do something about it. Now, when the pocketbooks are involved, it's like, do you want more money for education? Do you think we should save more water? Um, They say yes. And if you say, well, do you want to cut, do you want to increase taxes for education or do you want to cut your own water use? People tend to say that's a a higher. Yeah, that's a higher level commitment. I remember some years ago we did a series of polls for Glendale. And the first one was, how do you feel about recycling? And everybody's in favor of it. And the mayor looked at it. She didn't believe it. She, she said, well, all right, what if we you know, mandate this? And then we finally we said, how about if we if we impose a tax in order to do that? And people said yes. And at that point, she said, OK, I really now I believe. It, you know? <laughs> and that is a fair assessment. There's things that a lot of people think that we should do, but they're not willing to pay for it. That's a that's a mid-level concern. When you're willing to pay for it, then you're then you're you know you got something that's well looking forward to the legislative session next year hopefully we'll see if people are willing to pay for it or we'll not we'll see if they 
or if they're elected officials. I get that they're willing to pay for it. Thanks, Paul Benz. We'll see you next week. In the Think Tank, this is Mike O'Neill. I'm reachable at mikeoneill.org. At that website at the bottom, you can reach me via email or other social media.